black parenting is hard, which is why I don't do it. You know, I mean, it looks difficult. It Not only do you have to cut, try to raise like a mentally healthy and strong, you know, and loving uh, human being, you also have to be constantly cautioning them against the things that the world is going to throw at them as a black person. What's good? I'm Nikisha Elise Williams, and this is Black and Published, bringing you the journeys of writers, poets, playwrights, and storytellers of all kinds. Today's guest is Brian Broom, author of the award-winning memoir, Punch Me Up to the Gods, a book that would not exist had it not been for Brian's years of drug and alcohol abuse and his quest to get clean. When I was in rehab, I had a counselor who would be like, you know, you lie a lot. And she was like, you know, you're never going to get sober if you keep lying. So <laughs> when I would go back to my room and write, I would be like, okay, what is the truth? The truth, Brian writes, is equally painful as it is affirming of what it takes to grow from a black boy to a black man in the United States. During the discussion, he shares the shame he still feels around sharing some of his story. Why he and his family don't talk about that time he burned down the house. And the fallback jobs he still got on standby. You know, just in case this writing thing doesn't work out. That and more is ahead when Black and Published continues. When did you know that you were a writer? I still don't know that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I have no idea. Um, You know, I I just go with it. Like, really, I I enjoy writing. And as long as people want to read what I I write, then I'll keep writing. Um, But, you know, I'm still, you know, I know a lot of writers who are very confident and say that, you know, I'm a writer. Um, and it feels, it still feels, um, a little weird to me because I never kind of, I never, I never said I wanted to be a writer. Like this is something that I, you know, I don't want to say I fell into it, but, you know, I just started writing for like my own mental health. Um, and then people wanted to read it and then I just kept writing. And so, um, I don't know. I think maybe one day, maybe one day it'll hit me and then I'll say, I'm a writer, but that day is not here yet. Okay. So then if you feel like you fell into it and people wanted to read what you were writing, when did you, I guess, decide that the things that you were writing for your own personal healing, you wanted to give to the world in a more public way? Um, <laughs> this is a terrible answer. Like, I didn't decide that either. Like, uh, <laughs> I love it. I, um, you know, I, in, I, I went to rehab for drug and alcohol abuse and I was in rehab and that's where I started writing. And I was writing just kind of for, um, you know, there's not a whole lot to do in rehab, you know? Um, and I started writing in there and, um, you know, when I came out, I started performing, like doing these sort of open mic things. And one night when I was performing, I met a woman um, who said she wanted to be my agent. 
And, you know, she was like, you know, what are you writing? And I told her about, you know, the stories and she read them and she said, okay, I'm going to take you on as my client. And I was like, okay. Uh, um, and she said, we're going to write a book basically. And I was like, okay. I mean, and that's, and I just kept the, I guess the point is I just kept saying yes to things, you know, and that's still my go-to. Like I just say yes to things. <laughs> um, and you know, and they, and they, some, some work out and some don't, you know? Um, but now that the book is out there, I do feel more confident, you know, in this thing and the things that I write. Um, but if there was never been, there's never been on my part, like a decision, like I am a writer and this is what I'm going to do. I still got all kinds of like fallbacks, you know, <laughs> I'm, you, know <laughs> you know, I might go back to waiting tables. I mean, it could happen any minute, but I, um, for now, I'm I am happy, you know, just writing. Mr. Winner of the Carcass Prize and Washington Post columnist, I don't think you're gonna go back to waiting tables no time <laughs> soon. Um, that's just my opinion, but you know, whatever. <laughs> so what has it felt like to say yes to things that were not in your life plan as you were planning it and for it to work out? Um, it feels great because I wasn't planning my life. Well, you know, I did have a plan, you know, I had, um, a job that I hated. Um, but my plan literally was just to like, stay at that job because it, you know, it paid all right. And, you know, I just was prepared to be miserable every day from 9am to 5pm. You know, that was like my plan because I'm from one of those families and I think a lot of uh, Black Americans are from those families. Get a job, you know, get a job that pays well and live a life, you know. Um, not really, you know, my family uh, wasn't really concerned about, like, your happiness. Like, you get a job, <laughs> you know. And so that was my plan. So it feels great to actually be doing something that I enjoy you know, and then have those, have it like work out. That's amazing to me. And I think that in part leads to, you know, why I still have all these like fallback jobs <laughs> um, because there are times when I can't believe it. There are times when I'm just like, wow, you know, I, um, I meet with certain people and I'm like, wow, like, I can't believe that happened. I really need to make sure that that table waiting job is still waiting for me, you know? Uh, <laughs> Um, so it feels, it feels amazing. And, uh, I'm very, very, very blessed. When you say that I am, I guess, unfortunately reminded of that scene from the Cosby show with Theo and, you know, the whole regular people bit and, you know, you got to get a job and you have money. And now you, I guess, stumbled for lack of a better word into something that you enjoy and can love and can also you know, provide you the kind of life that you want to live. What has your journey been like to get to this place of peace? Oh, there ain't no peace. I mean, <laughs> well, okay then. It's it's uh you know it's more you know I'm a I'm a drug addict, and the thing that I'm most grateful for is that I'm clean. You know, um, this place that I'm in right now. I wouldn't trade it for anything right now. You know, the, what I've been through, I regret that I didn't um, get clean sooner. Um, but you know, what can you do about that? You know, I got clean when I got clean. 
But if I take, if I actually sit down and take the time to think about where I was, you know, 10 years ago, it never would have dawned on me like that I'd be sitting here today talking to you about a book and about a Kirkus Prize and about the Washington Post and about these other opportunities that have been uh, presented to me. It just, if you knew where I was, like you wouldn't believe it. You are so candid about your addiction and what was going on in your life when you were in the throes of that addiction in your memoir as well as you know the life that you lived as a black gay man who was trying to reconcile that within himself and within his family structure it was striking to read and i guess my question is was it difficult to write even though it comes across with such beauty and ease absolutely absolutely you know um <laughs> i put my business in the street you know <laughs> Yes, you did. <laughs> um, but as I said, you know, it was very important to me to get sober because after you've been, you know, abusing drugs and alcohol for a long time, like you get tired, you know, and, and you realize that this isn't working like this drug, this booze and, and, and drugs, it's not working. And I was desperate to try something else. And when I was in rehab i had a counselor um who was great like um i would go to her um you know because rehab is basically you go to therapy all day and you know do therapeutic things and um when i would go and see her she would be like you know you lie a lot and she was like you know you're never going to get sober if you keep lying so <laughs> you know i uh i when I would go back to my room and write, I would be like, okay, what is the truth? Like, mm. you know, I also have to talk about how awful I was to people. I have to talk about how selfish I was. And, and you know, and so I have to kind of be honest about all this stuff if I'm going to get sober. And that I think was the driving force, but it was difficult. You know, there are some things I put in the book that I, I that I was uh, later, I was just like, oh my God, I shouldn't have put that in there. Um, and you know, but now it's out there. There are some things that I put in that I did take out because they were too much. There aren't many books like this that I've read on the market. So then what was the conversation between you, agents, editors, publishers about, you know, once it was ready about what the plan was? Um, the, the plan was kind of that, like there aren't a whole lot of books out there you know on this topic i think that we're talking about it more i think in the in the in the black community the conversation is just barely beginning about our boys and homophobia and misogyny and what it means to be a man you know little nas x is out there doing his like thing and you know i just watched uh rothaniel um and you know we're starting to talk about it more um, and it's just, we're, we're still at the beginning of this conversation. I'm very grateful that if in any small way, my book can be part of the conversation, um, that we're having about these different sort of like gender roles, it's, you know, they're, they're constructed and they are sometimes harm, harmful. Um, and I think that's a conversation that we should be having. 
So then let's get to the book so that we can further have this conversation. If you want to do your reading and then we will go from there. Sure. All right, Black and Published family, it's time for the reading. Brian's memoir, Punch Me Up to the Gods, details his life from his upbringing in Ohio to his move to Pittsburgh as he navigated the various intersections of his identity, Black, gay, and male, while also experiencing extreme poverty and suffering from severe addiction. Through this exploration, Brian also deconstructs the concept of manhood in interludes woven throughout the narrative about a little boy he saw on a city bus named Tuan. Here's Brian. Um, this is at the very beginning of the book where I see Tuan. Um, and this little story is called The Initiation of Tuan. I'm standing at the bus stop in McKeesport, Pennsylvania, on the black end of town. It's a hot but overcast summer day. To my left is a young man mesmerized by his cell phone. He laughs out loud periodically while staring into its depths. Then his thumbs fly like hummingbird wings over the keyboard. He is dressed like all the other young men around here in the newest iteration of distressed jeans with stark white tennis shoes and a shirt with a sports logo emblazoned across the front. I notice him only because a little boy wearing an almost identical outfit in miniature is circling around and around his feet like a toy train. The toddler, who is doing all the things toddlers do with their newly found feet, pitches forward with full force onto the sidewalk, enormous toddler head first. The women around me gasp, and so do I. Some of them take halting steps toward the boy. Pearls are clutched while we wait for the young man, who I assume is the boy's father, to pick the boy up and tend to him. The boy's wails are high-pitched and ear-splitting. The child's name is Tuan. Shake it off, Tuan, the young father says, glancing briefly down at the boy and then turning back to his phone. Tuan sits down on the sidewalk only to howl more loudly. The women around me shift their eyes from the child to the father and back again. Their worried looks are digging deep creases between their brows. They exchange disapproving glances at one another. The boy's screams are now rattling his voice box and his mouth is open so wide that his little face appears to be tearing itself apart. As I watch the boy sitting on the sidewalk, I try to remember what real crying feels like. I can't. I can only remember the tactics I employed to try to suppress it. Tuan's father picks the boy up off the ground and places him on the bus stop bench before turning back to the flickering lights inside his phone. Tuan has no interest in shaking it off. Be a man, Tuan, the boy's father says out of the corner of his mouth, eyes steady on the phone. Tuan has no interest in being a man, and his streaming continues. Tuan's father kneels down, grips the boy by the shoulders, and looks him straight in the eyes. Stop crying, Tuan. Be a man, Tuan. When I was a boy, I used to sit on the back steps of our house after an ass whooping because afterward I was always commanded not to leave our yard. My father would wander out after a long while with his head down and the same hands he'd used to just whoop my ass shoved deeply into his pockets. Instead of letting the screen door slam as he usually did, he would close it carefully. He knew he had let his temper get the best of him, and so he would come out weighed down by a remorse he was unable to express with words. He'd just sit down next to me and quietly look off into the distance. He'd fish out his packet of Winston's, place one between his lips, use both hands on his lighter, 
to light it and exhale a thick cloud of ivory smoke. For a little while, he and I would sit there and share a silence that was occasionally broken up by my hiccuping sobs and sharp intakes of air. Sometimes he would come out bearing gifts, a popsicle or a candy bar that he'd hand to me wordlessly while still looking out on the backyard. And we'd sit there until he couldn't take listening to my sopping, wet whimpering any longer. And he'd command me suddenly as if he'd just woken out of a dream. Stop crying. You done cried enough. Stop crying right now. I would stop immediately. As Tuan's father's voice becomes louder, demanding that the boy stop crying, all I want to do is pick the boy up to make sure he's all right. I can't explain it. Something to do with his tiny shoulders being held in a vice-like grip by the very person he needs tenderness from in this moment. Something about his unaddressed ache. And I realize that this, what I am witnessing, is the playing out of one of the very conditions that has dogged my entire existence, this being a man to the exclusion of all other things. As Tuan's father publicly chastises him for his tears, I remember how my own tears were seen as an affront. I remember how my own father looked at me as if I was leaking gasoline and about to set the whole concept of black manhood on fire. Stop crying, be a man. How did you get to weaving your story with the the, the in introduction and the indoctrination of Tuan. So Tuan, that didn't happen until I was actually kind of like in the middle of the book, like writing the middle of the book. And then um, one day I, I literally like that story happened just the way that I wrote it. Like I was standing at the bus stop. I see a little boy fall and I see him crying and I see his father just say, stop crying and doesn't like tend to him at all. Um, and some people were like, well, that's just negligent fathering. And I was like, no, that's the way like boys are raised. <laughs> you know, that's the way we, we um, you know, particularly I think in the black community, we start training our boys to be, you know, quote, tough and quote, you know, all the time. And so um, I got on the bus and I sat near them and I took out my you know, my pen and, and pad. And I just started jotting down their, their interactions. And I felt like the things that I saw when I got them home, I, you know, when I saw, looked at my scribblings of their interactions, I, I saw a direct correlation between, you know, the way Tuan was being treated as a young black boy and the way that I was treated, you know, as a young black boy into, into manhood, you know? So um, I was like, well, this has to go in the book. So that's how I got there. I remember reading one of the sections. I just turned to it on page 117. And you're talking about Tuan was playing with his iPad and the game wasn't really working. And you have the line. All he wanted was the pretty lights. He didn't know that he had to prove himself for them to appear. And I think I messaged you. I was like, that took me out. I had to sit with those words. I'm still sitting with those words. I was like, whoa, I didn't ask you for all of this. <laughs> <laughs> For, you to, for, for all this dragging right here. Um, and incorporating the story of Twan and breaking it up as you did to show the parallels of how Black boys are still being raised in comparison to how you were raised and everything that you went through. When you were crafting the book and getting it ready for publication, why was it important for you to explain what was happening 
but then also show the grace of why there could be a better way in raising young black boys? Um, because I see it, you know, I see, I see parents, black parents now raising their boys differently. You know, I don't see it a whole lot, <laughs> um, but I do see it. I do see, you know, black fathers who have recognized maybe the way that they were brought up was not the best way for their son's mental health and for their son to become like a whole person, you know, but mostly I do still see that same old, like be a man, be a man to be tough, you know, kind of raising of boys. But, you know, I, there, but I, you know, black parenting is hard. It looks hard to me, <laughs> which is why, <laughs> which is why I don't do it. You know, I mean, it looks difficult. It not only do you have to cut, try to raise like, a mentally healthy and strong, you know, and loving uh, human being, a smart human being, and a funny, you know, all those good things, right? You also have to be cost constantly cautioning them against the things that the world is going to throw at them as a black person. You know, this is something that white parents don't have to contend with, right? Um, any parenting looks hard, but raising, uh, it's important to extend grace because raising black children, I would be terrified you know, all the time, um, you know, not only uh, because of what the parent parenting comes with in general, like, like their health, their well-being, but also just because you're sending them into this world, into this society that will eventually, it's guaranteed, you know, uh, uh, somehow abuse them for being Black. And that's why I think, uh, for the most part, we do still have this thing, particularly with black boys about being tough, 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 and rough and tough all the time. Unfortunately, um, that toughness extends to the way that um, women, black women are treated. You know, um, it's not so, it, this sort of patriarchal thing that gets handed down. It's like, you know, you have to be more powerful than somebody. And oftentimes that powerfulness, you know, is, aimed at black women and that's i think what needs to change you know you can raise a strong boy without raising a misogynist and a homophobe mm -hmm. and you can and the same thing with girls like you know being tough doesn't mean that you have power over somebody those are two different things being strong doesn't mean that you have power over somebody those are two different things what do you think black masculinity is and what do you think it should be? What I think it is right now, unfortunately, you know, I read, you know, Bell Hooks, God rest her, wrote a book called uh, We Real Cool, Black Men and Masculinity. And in her in her book, she one of the one of the theories that she puts out there is that black manhood in America has taken on, you know, this patriarchal tone that comes from, you know, white supremacy. Right. It comes from this white idea of what a man is. Um, and, you know, strength and patriarchy are not the same thing. <laughs> you know, um, they don't have to be the same thing. I think people have come to think of them as one in the same. I think what black manhood looks like, you know, I grew up in the 90s. 
um, you know, when, you know, rap had become incredibly misogynistic and, and black women were always, you know, bitches and hoes and how you, how you don't love them and how they nasty and how blah, 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 you know, um, it, unfortunately that comes from somewhere that comes from, um, a culture, um, where patriarchy and misogyny are conflated with strength. Um, if that makes any sense. In order to be a strong man, you have to be over a woman. You have to be, you know, ruling a woman. That's not the case. That's, but, um, you know, and unfortunately, that's what a lot of Black manhood is looking like right now. Um, and misogyny and homophobia are, you know, they're, you know, they're fraternal twins. They're cut from the same cloth, right? Um, so that's what I think too many, far too many people think um, Black manhood is. Um, the second part of your question, I think that you don't have to sacrifice, you know, um, being strong for not being a misogynist or a homophobe, you know, I hear like so many things like men are getting soft or whatever. Um, you know, I hear that a lot, but I don't think that that's the case. I think that men who are truly strong look at all that bullshit. They look at all that, like, you know, misogyny and they look at all that homophobia and they, they're like, well, I'm not doing that. That's what strength looks like, you know, to go against like what you're being told you're supposed to be. And that's what I think uh, masculinity could look like. The real strong people, mentally strong are out here you know, you know, saying like, I don't hate women. I respect women. I, yeah, you know, I'm not a homophobe. I don't have to prove, I don't have to prove anything to anybody. A lot of times I think masculinity is about proving things to other men. You know, performative masculinity in this weird way is oddly homoerotic because men do it for other men. <laughs> you know, it seems like, um, and I think true strength um comes from um you know a man looking at all that you know and not caring if his friends call him a fag or whatever and and like and doing whatever the hell he wants to do and being friends with whomever the hell he wants or or being gay or being straight or whatever it just comes from rejecting all that shit that people keep telling that you telling you that you should be that is informed in my opinion by capitalism patriarchy um and, you know, all the other things that I think do men harm and women harm. You tell the story in the book about the time you burned down the house. <laughs> <laughs> why you gotta put, why you gotta tell everybody? <laughs> it's in the book. <laughs> fine. All do right, you, fine. Do you go back to that moment with your family and ever talk about that? Because I was like, you just telling me how you you just burned the whole house down. Yeah. You know, I have actually gone back to the spot where the house was. Mm. And it's so strange to me. I mean, I am so old. And like um, that, I, 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 I burned that house down. I forget how old I was. It was maybe 11 or 12. Nobody has built anything on that spot since. Still? Still, it's still empty. It is still empty. I went back to look at it. I mean, this was just like maybe two summers ago. Um, and every, you know, the neighborhood has been built around it. You know, nobody has built on that spot ever, ever again. I think it's, I, for some reason, I just think that's so interesting. And it's a beautiful little plot of land. I don't know, but I think that I just like, 
I hated it so much. I hated that poverty so much that I think it just, I mean, I think I put a curse on the land or something. I don't know. <laughs> it's but, like the whole neighborhood is immemorial to what used to be there. Yeah, that's what it feels like. It's so strange. Um, we have not still talked about it. We haven't. They read it, but it was very strange. Like when it happened, we never talked about it. And I, my mother, I, she had to have known that I did it, but she never scolded me. She never asked me if any questions. My sister who was there never talked. We've never talked about it. And I think that is so weird. Wow. Yeah. As I, I read that section, that chapter, and then I immediately thought of Disha Filia's story, Jael, and uh-huh. how, that's, how that story ends. Mm-hmm. And then whenever I read that story, I always think of yeah. Left Eye burning the house down. Just, <laughs> that clip from that clip from like when they were on Behind the Music, where Chili's like, "Turn on Channel Five, she burned the house down." <laughs> She took care of that house. Like, yes, she did. It's just, I mean, you know, I was crazy. You know, I just, I hated how poor we were because that's, you know, another conversation. Like when, Mm. if, when you're poor in this, in this culture, like the culture treats you like you did something wrong, like you're worthless, like you're lazy, like all these things. And I hated it. You know, because I was going to school every day with these, um, you know, these white kids who seemed to have it all. And that added to my, like, feelings of, you know, shame. Why? Because they're shameful, you know. Like, there's a point in the book where I talk about, um, I don't even know if, I don't even want to say it now. Like, um, where I talk about me in high school and how, you know, I was basically cooning, you know, um, that was so hard for me to write. That was so hard for me to write. And I wanted to take it out, but there was just no other word. You know, there was no other way to say it. Um, and, you know, there are days where I'm like, oh, God, I wish I didn't put that in there. Um, but it's the truth. And I think it's the truth that you know, black Americans face, we grow up in this culture that tells us that there's something, there's something second or third or fourth class about us, you know, and that's what I wanted to communicate that that's what was happening to me. And there was no other way to say it. So, um, yeah, but it's very shameful. It's a shameful thing. I know what part you're talking about and reading that part, I think what sticks out to me the most is when your mother came to get you. Mm. And as a mother, you know, your your kids can piss you off and do some of the dumbest shit ever, mm-hmm. but you're going to get that baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you're going to get that baby. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. ain't nobody tell you to bring your ass all the way out here, but yeah. come on, let's go home. <laughs> and so that that's what stuck out to me the oh, yeah. most. Yeah. And then... The chapter that you gave her where she tells her own story and in her yeah. own voice. How did you come to that decision? Because I think that was one of my favorites. Um, I came to the decision because I was just I really wanted to give some perspective, you know, um, about who I was and where I came from. And nobody knows you better than your own mother. 
Um, and I was kind of tired of the sound of my own voice, you know, in the book. Um, and so I decided to go to my mom and interview her um, for that chapter. Um, and I was very surprised because my mother was, she was very much more open than I thought she would be. Um, she was like, go ahead, tell it. I don't care. You know? Um, and I learned a lot about her, um, in the interview process, like the stuff in the, in that chapter, like a lot of it, I did not know, you know, and all of a sudden, like a light bulb went on off over my head, like, oh my gosh, my mother was a person. She hasn't always been my mother, you know, and that seems really like stupid, right? Of course she was. But like, I think a lot of times when we look at our parents, like we don't recognize the fact that, you know, they were whole ass people. Like before you came along, they had, my mother had dreams and ambitions and she wanted to be a nurse and like, and then just because of the time, you know, all of that got derailed, you know, she had now become what society told her that she needed to be because she was pregnant. And, you know, I wanted that chapter because I wanted people to know, you know, that my parents weren't villains. I didn't feel like you vilified your parents. I think one of the most endearing moments is the story that you tell and your mother ends up buying you the shirt. Yeah. The department store. I really yeah. love, I really love that story. And I think as a whole, there was resolution to me. Like, even though you're still on your journey, you're still living, there was resolution to that portion of your story that you're sharing in the book. And coming from such a background where you are able to acknowledge your poverty and acknowledge the racism you face and the homophobia that you face as a, a young child, and then all that you've gone through as an adult to where you are now, what would you say to the boy of your youth? Um... If he would listen, which he probably wouldn't, I would say, you know, please don't put too much stock in what people are saying to you. What people are saying to you is designed for you to make them more comfortable around you. When people are telling you that you need to be a football, baseball, basketball player, um, that is for them, not for you. When people are telling you that it's wrong to be gay, that is for them, not for you. When people are telling you that it's shameful to be poor, um, that is all about them, you know? So I would tell that young boy that a lot of what people tell you is bullshit, <laughs> you know, and don't let it affect you. But, you know, that's great advice, but it doesn't really work in the real world, you know? Um, you can tell a kid that and they won't listen to you. You can tell an adult that we still we still are sort of enslaved by the things other people think about us or say about us, you know, and I would also try to tell him to, you know, also be kind to other people because I wasn't always kind, um, you know, because of the things that were put on me. I would search out somebody who was like weaker than me um and and do the same thing to them so it's just this thing that keeps going and going and going and i wish it would stop i wish people would would stop mm. and so then along those same lines what do you want your readers to get from your story and all that you've put into it exactly that you know leave people the hell alone 
you know, um, leave people's bodies alone, leave people's, uh, you know, other, other people's lives alone, as long as they're not harming anybody else. Stop, stop imposing your expectations on people. Let people live their lives. Um, you know, that's what I would like people to do. I would like for people to just be more empathetic, I guess. I try to be, I don't always succeed, but um, I do think about, I do try to think about other people's feelings when I'm engaging uh, out in the world. Um, and I do try to let other people be free um, and, and do their thing. I want to transition to a speed round and a quick game before I let you go for the afternoon. Uh, what is your favorite book? Oh, God. Oh, I'm going to just give a shout out to my friend, Isha Filia, The Secret Lives of Church Ladies. Um, I'm going to say that today because um, I love her and I love her writing. Who is your favorite author? Oh, I don't have one. Like, I mean, I, it feels like I'm copping out, but like I... I, I don't have one. I don't have one. All right, so we talked about rap music. You have a chapter in your book with the title of a famous Luther Vandross song. So mm-hmm. who is your favorite artist? Singer? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, right now I'm in a real big Anita Baker phase. Yes! Um, and, and also Millie Jackson. Mm-hmm. Um, Millie Jackson from the 1970s like, is, is another favorite, you know. Um, yeah. So right now it's Anita Baker and Millie Jackson. Okay. So talked about all these fallback jobs when you go back to, to, to being a waiter. What are the fallback jobs that you have lined up in your head just okay. in case? <laughs> okay. So just in case I, you know, I can always go back to waiting tables. Um, I can, I, I do have a, um, uh, a friend who still works for AAA who says that she can get me back at AAA if I want to go back to AAA, but I don't, I got fired from there, but I don't know if they'll, if they'll rehire me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I just, I just have friends that work in these different, like this customer service usually, um, or, you know, like waiting tables. These are all the fallback jobs that I have lined up in case you know this writing shit don't work out so i'm not gonna go i'm not gonna miss a payment i'm not going hungry like i'm going right back to work if this doesn't work out (laughs) okay it's on the opposite end of that that spectrum if money were no option where would you go what would you do and where would you live oh man you know i loved paris so much i would probably live in paris but it's you know, if money were no object, you said, okay, so Paris, or I would buy a house here, like in the Bay area, like, because since I've been here, like I've really, really, uh, come to enjoy it. Like Oakland, um, you know, I just, my dreams are all pretty, um, manageable. I don't need to be like rich. I'm not, that's not a, that's not a goal of mine. I do, you know, and this sounds cliche. I do want to be like comfortable. I don't want to have to worry about, financial things, but like, I just picture myself, um, you know, in a quiet place that's near a, near a big city. What's the best thing so far about your new sober West coast writing life? Um, I love Pittsburgh, of course, but like now that I'm not around like my life, you know, I feel freer to write other kinds of things, you know? And I also, you know, I'm out here teaching 
Um, and yesterday it was beautiful. I'm teaching grad students and we played duck, duck, goose outside. <laughs> um, and you know, that was fun. I just feel a little bit freer out here because I, it's just, the vibe is different. You know, um, the culture is different. Um, the people are different. And so, and I'm really enjoying it. And it makes me feel like writing, a, you know, different kinds of things. Okay. And so what brings you peace? Being left the fuck alone. <laughs> I'm really not, I'm really not like a, a huge people person. You know, I have my four or five people. Um, and, you know, it's not that I don't enjoy people sometimes, but, you know, I guess I'm, I'm what they call an introvert. Not that I'm shy. I'm not shy. But if I'm around a lot of people, like it does take a lot of energy out of me and I have to like, you know, be alone for a few days um but i just you know my favorite th- i'm gonna tell you what my favorite thing in the whole world is is when i am by myself and i have nothing to do and i can just kind of do whatever i feel like doing whether that's absolutely nothing or reading or or um you know i don't when i don't have anything on my mind that needs mm. to be done like when the slate is clean i've done all my things and um, I can just feel free to just like not do anything. My dream is to do nothing. <laughs> See, those moments give me severe anxiety. Like I really? feel like I'm supposed to be doing something. Like did right. I miss something? Did I forget something? Right. Like I just, I don't have nothing. Right. I'm not okay. <laughs> All right. So my game is called rewriting the classics. We'll see how far we get. Okay. What's the one book you wish you would have written? Uh, the Prophets, Robert Jones Jr. What's one book where you want to change the ending and how would you do it? Probably Brokeback Mountain. <laughs> it's so sad. Uh, I would make it. I would make. I would make it happier. I would make the two the two gay cowboys go off into the distance and be in love forever and ever. But you know that would completely change what the what the story is, and that's not fair. Um, but it's so sad uh, okay. the way it is, but it's a good, sad story. All right. And so my messy question, messy question. Born, yes. Name a book that you think is overrated or overtaught for the professor in you. Um, probably infinite jest. Um, it's a mess. <laughs> I don't get it. I don't understand it. Like, um, people keep talking about it like it's like a classic or whatever, and it's like so genius. It's I just it's just a, a mess to me. I didn't and I, I mean, maybe I'm being unfair because I didn't even like get through it, but like it's a mess. It's not that great. Like um, what else? What else? What else? What else? What else? Whenever I pick up a book, like because I'm I'm supposed to have read it, you know, as a professor, or it's supposed to be like canon or whatever like it's not great like walden like sucks like you know what i mean like it's i mean it can kiss all my entire ass like it's so boring and like every time i try to read like something canon and the classic this is usually white man you know it's it leaves me cold and i'm like i don't get it and i don't like it thank you yeah so my final two questions for you today First, you said you've been working on some new things that are outside of your wheelhouse. So what's next for your literary career? Because it seems very charmed. 
Um, I am writing something now, and I have this idea. Um, it's not nonfiction, it's a novel. Uh, I had this idea, and I, I sort of pitched it to my agent, and I pitched it to my editor. And they were like, you should try it, you should try it. And so I started writing it. Um, and I just was really, I'm really excited about it. I just don't know where it's going to go yet. It's different than nonfiction. You know, the characters and the characters are telling me what's happening, right. Mm -hmm. Or what's going to happen now. And that's pretty fun. It's not an experience that I've had before. Um, and I'm working on some like, you know, TV and, and movie stuff, um, which is, uh, exciting. Uh, we'll see what happens with that, but that's what's next, you know, and I'm going to continue to teach. So, yeah. Well, congratulations on that. Thank you. And my final question. So when you are dead and gone and among the ancestors, what would you like someone to write about the legacy of words and work yeah. that you left behind? Um, I really don't know. I have gotten so many uh, really nice um responses from people you know from from so many really nice things that have been said about the book and that and now and, you know i've gotten them while i'm living which is great like i don't know if i care what anybody if anybody says anything you know after i'm gone um but you know i just i think what i would like to be known was is that you know he tried to be a better person, you know, um, he looked at the world and, and saw that there were things that were wrong and he occasionally spoke to it, you know, um, I don't, I, I, you know, I don't have any sort of like desires to have been considered great or like anything like that, but you know, did you ever see Paris is burning? Mm -hmm. Um, and it's like uh, Dorian Corey said, like, you know, the the, uh, the the thing about life is just to get through it, you know. And if you shoot an arrow and it goes real high, uh, hooray for you. Um, that's kind of the way I think about life right now. You know, I shot an arrow and it went kind of high and like that's hooray for me. But, you know, the 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 goal of life is just is, is to get through it and if you can get through it you've done you've done your job if you people remember your name and you get through it like that's that i think that's good enough for me for right now anyway you talk to me next year i'm gonna want to be beyonce <laughs> thank you, know, you brian <laughs> things change things change <laughs> <laughs> Big thank you to Brian Broom for being here on Black and Published today. Make sure you check out Brian's memoir, Punch Me Up to the Gods, out now in paperback from Mariner Books. And if you're not following Brian, follow him on the socials. He's at BBROMB on Instagram. And that's the letter B, the letter B, R-O-M-B on Instagram. That's our show for the week. If you like this episode and want more Black and Published, head to our Instagram page. It's at Black and Published, and that's B-L-K and Published. There, I've posted a bonus clip from my interview with Brian about what he says he was trying to fix in himself during his years of addiction. Make sure you check it out and let me know what you think in the comments. I'll holla at y'all next week. 
when our guest will be Asante Waboykin. Until next time, peace.